seven pens. So that's why I'm painting out the beginning, even though we're most likely still the end. These are all anonymous, so I want you to be as truthful and honest as possible. And there was like two things that for sure before the semester started, I felt like I have to talk about these at some point. What we've already done is Psalm 100 verse 4. We enter his gates with thanksgiving, we enter his courts with praise, with a message about joy. This one is like probably gonna be multiple weeks, and I don't know, it'll span somewhere into the spring semester. I'm saying we're gonna do them all consecutive. But it's talking about our sexual ethics and why the gospel provides a better narrative. What I want you guys to do with your note card and what I want you to do with the pen is that when we hear sexual ethics, some of our minds immediately go to a place, either brokenness in our own lives, something in society, brokenness in our friends' lives, things that we're experiencing and seeing on campus or that we experience through the screen on our phones, our television, whatever. But what I want you to write on the note card, it could be as simple as one word, it could be a question, it could be a topic. And what these are going to be handed anonymously will help me to know where to go in future weeks when we talk about this stuff. So let's say, for example, like I'm outside, I'm just getting the whiteboard talking with you about the gospel all the time, and I hear people who are no longer rejecting the gospel on the basis of their ability to believe, for example, in the historical claims of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. It's actually on the basis of we reject what we see as the biblical narrative for sexual ethics, therefore I'm just, I want to put God at a distance, right? So some of you may be saying, how do we address the question of LGBTQ from a thoughtful, compassionate, yet holding the line of biblical truth? For some of you, maybe, hey, I'm experiencing like addiction to pornography, and I need breakthrough. I'm trying everything, and I can't get breakthrough in this area of addiction. Whatever it is, whether it's something personally you need help with or a topic, or it could be like a very nuanced question, like, hey, I have a friend who's dealing with this. How do you, would you speak to that? And I'm not saying by any means I'm an expert, but it may be helpful for us to know, hey, we'll hear future talks around a conversation based on that. I'll do my best to study, bring you guys. A lot of tonight is going to be so much more teaching than preaching. I'll give you that on the front end. Like, I'm typically a preacher, which means that it comes out like intense and is like, man, call with a response. This is going to be like scholar putting on teaching, which is like a little left handed for me. And so I'm going to be reading straight from my notes a lot of quotes. One of the books that I use a lot for this, which I would highly recommend, is called Love Thy Body. It's not a self care book, it sounds like a self care <laughs> title. It is about why the gospel is good news for our bodies. It's, by, uh, it's a very academic scholar by Nancy Piercy. Uh, she is a professor at uh, Houston Baptist Seminary, I believe, and she looked at every contemporary issue that deals with the body from euthanasia, abortion, hookup culture, same-sex attraction, transgender from a biblical worldview. So a lot of what I'm pulling is from that tonight, and obviously from the Bible, right? <laughs> like, I'm not trying to do a book report. I want to come from the Bible. Um, but again, so the, the note cards are for questions topics, however nuanced or personal or broad as you want, and then we'll just see which ones rise to the top. Maybe at the end of doing all these, we'll just say like, hey, here are some specific questions. Let's speak into these, or let's just address the whole week dedicated to this. If you're like, I'm checking out, because you just said the next five, I'm not saying like, hey, we're going to consecutively just talk about nothing but sex for the next like five weeks. Um, definitely this week and next week, right? This is like an intro to it. Again, I want to teach you level to start, but I believe it's a very important you know that like I believe this is a real giant in the land, and I can say that at least because no generation in human history because of this has ever dealt with sexual temptation on the level of this generation. Ever. I believe in human history. Sexual sin has been there from the beginning, right? Like we're gonna see that tonight. But I don't believe it's ever been as in our face or as accessible as it is in this human in this generation. 
So I don't want to come at you, and I also want to address tone from the front end. Yeah. I can't do much to change the voice that God's given me, so like, I'll try my best to sound nice and everything I say tonight, but what I want to say about tone on the front end is hear the tone of the Father's heart, yeah. right? The Holy Spirit, like I said when I was praying, is the Holy Spirit does bring conviction, but conviction is something different than condemnation. Yeah. Yeah. Condemnation is, comes through the voice of the accuser. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Mm -hmm. He wants to steep you in shame and guilt, which you can't yeah. get out of, and you feel so weighed down by that right. that you don't want to enter to the light of God's presence. God is light, and in him there is no darkness right. at all. But that same passage goes on to talk about it. If we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. But the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from all sin. So because of the blood of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we can have fellowship with God in the light, and we can bring all of our mess and brokenness there and find healing and wholeness. So the Holy Spirit pricks, and he convicts for the sake of turning us to God so that we can be made whole and healed. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. So I just want to address tone on the front end, because some people, as soon as they hear anything around the topic of sex, either because of pain in their own life, the thing that they're walking through right now, just immediately receive a sense of condemnation. Like, yeah, I wish I could help through my Right now, so you may be thinking that you're going to use the bathroom, you're going to take off, right? I want you to hear, not the tone so much of my voice, but hear the tone of the Holy Spirit trying to turn you towards the Lord. Does that make sense? I want to say that just on the front end. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so just in case anybody else didn't hear it as well, the, the note card is where I want you guys to write down one question or topic, no matter how uh, personal or generic. Uh, and these will all be anonymous that deal with the topic of sexual ethics and like a biblical worldview, right? So you could just write down LGBTQ and I'll probably know it can be a broad topic. You could be like breakthrough in the area of addiction to pornography, right? And so we can't do all, the topic is so large, we can't do all of these in one week, right? And maybe there'll be again like a, a session where it's like, hey, we'll just hit some of these real quick. And there'll be other ones like, that deserves like a whole week. And again, I'm not trying to say, hey, this is just like five weeks on nothing but sex, but we'll know to intersperse between this semester or what's left and next semester. This is some of these topics. I think it's important, but we want to make sure we're addressing the real stuff that you guys are dealing with the questions that you have. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so a lot of the quotes, I'm not going to, like, unless I attribute it to someone else, most of the quotes I'm reading are from Nancy Pearson tonight. Okay, so just so I don't have to keep saying Nancy Pearson once said. Um, just know that on the front end. So she said in the beginning, the new secular orthodoxy is being imposed through virtually all the major social institutions, academia, media, public schools, Hollywood, private corporations, and the law. And current events are merely surface effects like waves on the ocean. The real action happens below the surface at the level of worldviews. And this is where on the front half of this talk, I'm gonna open up the secular worldview and all of you have experienced this. You may have never heard the underlying philosophy articulated this way, but I believe that this is going to be extremely eye-opening for you. In my chicken scratch handwriting, I'm going to write this on the board, and you probably will be able to read it. So if you listen to what I'm saying, when you're probably going to watch what I'm writing. It'll also give you time as I'm writing to kind of digest, and hopefully if you're taking notes, you can write down um, as I'm going. So uh, how many of you would agree, just on the front of that, in today's culture, claiming uh, to have a biblical definition of marriage is seen as hateful, discriminatory, and bigoted. How many of you would agree with that statement? Like, it's not only just a different opinion, it's actually a wrong opinion to hold what would be considered a historic or traditional view of biblical marriage. So this is a, a major, and then again, like I said before, many people have left Christianity today, you probably know somebody in your life, or either because of their own personal struggles or because they just so differ with what is seen as a historic biblical narrative of marriage 
that they just rejected again, not on the basis of the historical claims to the incarnation, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, the crucifixion, but just saying, morally, I object, and I think that God is wrong in this one, right? So Francis Schaeffer postulated that in our society, the concept of truth has been divided into two stories, theology and morality, which is seen as private, subjective, and relativistic, and science, which is the lower story, which is seen as public, objective, and valid forever. So this is going to be the first two-story divide. And there's going to be several. This is, again, speaking to the secular worldview that I'm going to draw up on the board. So the top of this two-story divide would be theology and morality. That's one category. And this is seen as private, subjective, and relativistic. And already some of you are probably like, why are you writing on the board for religions It's okay. At least it's giving you time to digest while I'm writing down. It's actually helping me find more than you. On the bottom would be science. And this is seen as public, public, objective, and valid for everybody. We're all saying true for all. Okay? So in our everyday language, it sounds something like this. You share how the gospel has changed your life, and someone says, I'm glad that works for you. Private, it's subjective, it's relativistic. It doesn't belong to the category of science. It's not like making an objective truth claim that has bearing on everybody's life. How many of you have experienced a statement like that? I'm so glad that works for you. Okay, so there's a close parallel between Schaefer's illustration and what is known in philosophy as the fact value split. So this can be demonstrated again through the two story divide. And it would look like this values. I'm just going to put the parentheses here, and that's just, again, the same thing. It's private, subjective, relativistic, and facts, which are public, subjective, and truthful. Okay? Things that fall into the fact realm often claim to build upon science, and these philosophies grew primarily out of the Enlightenment. Okay? Things that fall into the value realm grew out of the reaction to the Enlightenment, called the Romantic Movement, and out of the first we get Modernism, and out of the second we get Postmodernism, okay? So if we look at this again using this two-story divide, out of the Romantic Movement, are you guys familiar with these terms? You've ever studied these in life classes before? Okay. This is all going to like click. There's a last divide that I'm going to show here in Altair and go, oh, now I know why he's showing us this. <laughs> okay. Just know we're headed there. We're heading towards clarity if you're lost right now. And at that moment, I really believe a lot of you are going to say, we had no idea through all the sitcoms, through all the movies that we've watched, the philosophies that we've been swallowing and that have been like memory. What we see in the media is like waves on top of the shore. But the thing that's causing the waves is the worldview that undergirds it all. This is the secular worldview that's undergirding almost everything that you're seeing in society. Okay? So the Enlightenment. Gave us modernism. 
So these would be like, modulus would be like, we can solve everything through cause and effect. We can solve everything by reducing it down to its, uh, to its atoms in a sense. We can take it down even further through quantum physics. We'll figure out all the levels of cause and effect, and we'll just do like the hard, simple science. Postmodernism is like, nothing is true. Everything is relative. That's your truth. It's my truth. You guys have heard these things and probably just don't fit them under these umbrellas, but this is everywhere, right? And this is a two-story thing that basically creates a divide in our society. So the world of modernity seeks to rend purpose from the world of facts. Things are merely described in a factual, cause and effect, mechanistic framework. And because the concept of purpose is removed, value cannot be assessed. Does that statement make sense? Because purpose is removed from the fact level. It's merely cause and effect. You cannot make value assessments. Let me give you the example of a car. If I just told you this is how the inner workings of each part of the car works, but I never told you that a car was built to drive, I can't evaluate whether it's a good or bad car because I don't know the purpose for which it was made. I can't assess that's a good car because it's good at getting me from A to B. All I can do is say I can tell you how all these parts work together, right? That's what happens at this level, right? And this one seeks to make value assessments that are purely subjective and they're based on no inherent, purely objective purpose that undergirds everything. Does this make sense? I know that I'm losing some of you guys. Okay, we're heading towards Perry, I promise. <laughs> um, so again, the world of postmodernity seeks to make purpose, and there, or sorry, seeks to um, yeah, alienate purpose from facts and therefore value assistant assessments become purely subjective. Okay, here's a, a solid Nancy Piercy quote, which I can take credit for this. Because philosophy is so foundational, this divide affects every other subject area, including morality. In moral questions, we are asking, what is the right way to treat people? Our answer depends on what we think people are, on what it means to be human. The key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day is the concept of the human being has likewise been fragmented into an upper and lower story. Secular thought today assumes a body-person split with the body defined as the fact realm by empirical science and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. Okay, I'm gonna draw it and then I'm gonna read the statement again and then some of you are gonna, oh, okay. The worldview supporting secular morality is a profoundly fragmenting dualism that separates Body from person. Basically, it looks like this. Person, human. What makes you human? Like your physiological, biological makeup, your DNA that's present at conception is not what qualifies you for rights as a person. That your consciousness, your thought process, whatever, how you assess, right, is separate from your humanity. And therefore, we create fragmented people. It's a dualistic perspective of people. Now, understand that in the Bible, we have a dualistic worldview, too, because we believe that we are embodied souls, but we are integrated wholes, not separate. That our bodies have something to say about our authentic self. In personhood theory, the person is what you get the authentic self from, and the body is extrinsic to that. This is how people get alienated from their bodies. It's going to make more sense as we go on. I'm going to read that last statement again, because I think it's going to make more sense in line with that. 
because philosophy, again, is so foundational, this divide affects every other subject area, including morality, and moral questions we're asking what is the right way to treat people, our answer depends on what we think people are. This is what I'm trying to drive home. What do you think people are? You're like, that's such a basic question. I know what a person is. Do you? Does society know how to tell you what a person is? Okay? This is a big question on what it means to be human. How, how confused is our society right now in telling you what a human being is? Okay? The key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day is the concept of a human being has likewise been fragments in upper and lower stories. Secular thought today assumes a body person split with the body defined as the background by virtual science and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights. And this dualism, this separation, has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. Okay. So personhood theory essentially says to be biologically human is a scientific fact, but to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what we value. So to be a person, to be a human being are not the same thing, is what personhood theory says. So again, this is the person-body split. One of the major differences between the biblical worldview and the secular worldview at this point is that the biblical worldview sees the body and soul as an integrated unity, whereas the secular worldview or personhood theory sets the body against the person as though they were two separate things merely stuck together. And I want to ask you at this point, which is a more humanizing view? That's a weird way to say it. Which, let me ask it this way in a negative sense. Which one is more dehumanizing? To set the body and personhood against each other or to see them as an integrated whole? Which one, which one adds value to human life? One that sees them as an integrated whole or one that sets them apart and against each other? Right? An integrated whole, right? What I want you to see is not only to know the truth and to believe the truth, but to love the truth. We're not called to just believe the truth of the Bible, but to kind of feel like we're stuck with it because it's what we're supposed to believe, but to actually see better is a value statement. Better is like saying this is bad grammar. More good. It's, it's when considering the alternative, when considering the secular worldview, which I believe is a lie from the pit of hell, that has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and to lead sheep astray, Set against the biblical worldview, which is what God has called good, one is clearly more good, as in better than the other. So when you think about what the biblical worldview says next to the contemporary secular worldview, you should not only you shouldn't feel embarrassed explaining. You should say it's better, and because it's better, it's more beautiful. And I can show you how it leads to more freedom and more wholeness, right? I want that to be the confidence with which you approach some of the most touchy issues in our society today. Yeah. Not from a tone of judgmentalism, not from a tone of condemnation, but from a tone of oh, the Bible actually leads to more wholeness, health, and freedom. I believe it's better. It's more good because it's not God, right? Does this make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's where the biblical worldview begins to branch off. The biblical worldview holds to a theological view of nature, which means that we believe that there is a design, purpose, and goal for creation, which includes the human body. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to use this word teleological or theological more, so I just want to say it again. Theological view of nature means that we believe there is a design, purpose, or goal for creation. This includes the human body. Does anybody know uh, the, the answer to the famous question that was posed in the shorter Scottish Catechism, which is basically like back in the day, or in certain Baptist churches, they would have you go through like classes to show that you were sincere about your faith before you got baptized. But this is a famous question, and it's number one in that booklet. It says, uh, "What is the chief end of man?" Does anybody know the answer to this question? This is a famous question. Yeah. 
What is the chief end of man? God. Okay, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Okay, this is this is like big, and you could say maybe you could argue the wording, whatever. But he's just asking, what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. From the shorter Scottish Catechism, it's to enjoy to. And John Piper would summarize that or reword it and say that uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. And it's another way to say the same statement that our ultimate purpose is to glorify God the way that he is most glorified when we are most satisfied. Mm -hmm. When you believe that statement, that God's way is more good, right? I want to use that back there, but I think it just illustrates the point. When you believe that God's way is more good, he will be most glorified in your life. Mm -hmm. Right? When you believe the lie of the garden, God is trying to withhold something good from you. You will go the way of sin and God will not be glorified in your life. Okay? A Christian ethic respects I'm going to say it this way. A Christian ethic respects the design, intended purpose, and the end goal and nature of the body. Okay? If we lack a theological view of the world, then we have no purpose or goal against which to make value statements. We cannot call anything good or bad because there is no purpose against which we can judge it, right? How do you say a football team is good or bad? Well, the goal of the football team, unless you're playing like Kiwi football and you just want to have fun and play with your buddies, is to win football games, right? right? If you lose more football games than you win, you are a bad football team, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, this is taking like this kind of like high-level philosophical conversation point down. If there's no purpose, you can't make value assessments, right? If I don't understand the purpose for which the car was made, if let's say for example that I have a 12-passenger van and the goal is to shuttle 12 people at least. And if you're in like a church youth group, maybe 15, kind of pile them in there, right? We're going to get as many kids as we can, whatever. But, and I judge that against a sports car, which was designed, or let's say a race car, which was designed, because I can only assess its value if I know the purpose for which it was created. Mm-hmm. If I try to race the 12 passenger van, and I realize, like, man, I can say, that, it wasn't designed, but it's not fulfilling its purpose. But I pile 12 kids in there and get them safely from A to B, and say it's fulfilling its purpose. Right? You understand that. But if there's no purpose in the design of the universe, then we cannot make value assessments. We can't say whether it's fulfilling its design or it's not. And it's not just about the purpose, but it's about the end purpose, the goal. And sometimes because we live in a broken world right now, we fail to have an eschatological view of us standing before a perfect God and being made to look just like his son and understanding a place where God will be fully glorified in us. It's the end purpose. It's the end goal for which God created all things. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And based on that, we can make value assessments. But without that view of the universe, we cannot make value assessments. Mm. That's good. In a secular worldview, value statements become purely subjective and personally determined. See how it fits? Here it's private, subjective, it's relativistic, but we can't make any absolute claims on anyone or how we ought to live our lives, right? Um, so from a secular perspective, it has been described as if the body is separate from the person, then what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection to who you are as a whole person. Sex can be purely physical, separate from that. Listen to how Proverbs describes the adulterous woman. I think this could be said of all sexual sin. Almost nobody in this room except for me is married to thinking, well, adultery is not really something I'm struggling with in this season, right? 
But I just want you to think of Paul's sexual sin, the way that this proverb describes it. Proverbs 30, 20 says, this is the way the adulterous woman, I would just say of the sexually immoral. She eats and she wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. In this description, the woman treats her sexual impulses as nothing more than a physical appetite to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had a sexual urge, so I satisfied and I just wiped my mouth and I said, I did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. Because there's no moral assessment, there's no category, there's no boundaries in this situation in which sex fits, in which sex was designed for, in which it's able to say sex is a good thing here, but over here it's not a good thing, it's a bad thing, right? And you see this everywhere in our society where it's like, just satisfy the urge, it's just a physical desire, just like hunger, so just do whatever your body tells you is good and right, and then just wipe your mouth and say that you've done nothing wrong. Okay? So here's where the two-story divide, this is where I think it's going to click for some of you guys. This is where the two-story design, the body person split makes its way into our sexual ethic from a sexual sexual no the secular worldview perspective it would look like this personal as it relates to relationships which includes our emotional and mental relationships okay? And then the physical would be our sexual relationship. Okay, you start to see how when you live with this underlying worldview, when you get down to your sexual ethics, it allows you to rend the body from the value assessments that you place on its actions. It's saying that you can do whatever you want with your body. You don't have to associate your emotions or your mental relationship with that. You don't have to be in a lifelong covenantal relationship with that person until death do you part. You can just have friends with benefits. Let's just call it what it is. You guys can just satisfy your physical desires and your urges and just make sure that you don't get too attached. Mm -hmm. Physiologically, one, this isn't even possible. Your whole body is yeah. wired for yeah. one Everything about the way that your hormones function, your emotions function, people get broken in this. So, okay? At least one of the two people always gets broken in this. Okay? And I want to say, so this is the result of us swallowing. It's the same thing all the way through as it trickles down to our secular ethics. This is where the secular worldview just keeps people old. Nancy Pierce would go on to say that we tend to think that sexual hedonism, which would be a way of saying this, pursue maximal pleasure. This is like the, the ethos of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, was we tend to think that sexual hedonism places too much value on a purely physical dimension, but in reality it places a very low view on the body, draining it of moral and personal significance. The sexual revolution says that if we free our bodies from the constraints of traditional religious thought and we allow ourselves to satisfy every physical impulse and sexual desire we have, we will reach a state of utopia. Hmm. What actually happened is we drained the body of moral and personal significance. Mm. It said that the body is just like for you to utilize like a tool. But in the biblical ethos, these two things are intimately integrated. And we actually start to see that God's way is more good and more beautiful. As we're going to go on and read about the story of marriage. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 13. Are you guys with me at this point? Is this kind of starting to track and make sense? 
1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20 says this, You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, this is what the Bible says about what your body is for. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Okay? And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, which I want to note was a physical, bodily resurrection. Jesus didn't come back as a disembodied spirit. He didn't come back as a ghost. He came back in a body. If you believe in Jesus, your hope is not in a disembodied, spiritual, ethereal. And you're coming back and resurrecting eternal bodies. Okay? <laughs> By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Wow. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one for his body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Man. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the yeah. Holy Spirit? Yeah. Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Uh, therefore, I love therefore in the Bible. Therefore, <laughs> what's the exhortation? Why is it Paul? Honor God with your bodies. Okay. Here's, here's a, another lie. That many Christians believe. Soul good, body bad. Mm. That's not biblical. Okay? That will teach you to hate your body. But if God looks at you as an integrated whole, he says, good. Yeah. I designed it as good. I have a purpose for it. It's good. It's going to have a purpose in eternity. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have the same body that's subject to sin and sickness, but you will have a physical world. Right. We like Paul said, you don't know, but we won't be disembodied Okay? So I want you to know, like, man, Hating your, your humanity. Jesus came to redeem your humanity, yeah. not send you against you. Yeah. To fulfill its ultimate purpose in glorifying and honoring God. Okay? What Paul means by the flesh is inordinate desires, the sinful desires that are twisted by, by the fall. Not flesh's in humanity. Jesus took on humanity to redeem humanity, right? He didn't die to make you like an angel. He died to make you a redeemed human. So I I want you to encourage. So therefore, we honor the Lord. Okay. Nancy Pearson goes on to say, no matter what the current secular philosophy tells them, people cannot disassociate their emotions from what they do with their bodies. In the biblical worldview, sexuality is integrated into the total person. The most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate personal union of marriage. Mm-hmm. Biblical morality is teleological. The purpose of sex is to express the one flesh covenant bond in marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, I'm going to transition the remainder of our time. We're going to go Bible now. To yeah. tell what is the meaning, design, and purpose of marriage understood from a biblical worldview. I understand when we start talking about sex in church, we almost immediately go to everything that prohibits, and people start feeling that. And some of us have come from broken homes and have never had a good picture of what a healthy marriage looks like. I asked Regan last night, I read the bond person, Regan, what's the last time you saw a movie or a TV show or a series, whatever, where there was a healthy presentation of a marriage? Mm-hmm. All you think is, what's the last sitcom, Netflix series, or movie that you saw where there was a healthy presentation of marriage? Okay? And, and we are people who are shaped by stories. We are narrative has a profound impact on us. So all this stuff, you may have never heard this, you may not even understand what I'm talking about. You're already digesting it daily. 
through your screens, through the stories that we consume, is that we are getting a skewed perspective of what marriage is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have to step back into the biblical narrative and say, well, what is good? Where is sex supposed to belong? And what God have you ordained as good? What have you purpose and designed? What's the end goal of marriage, right? When Jesus was asked a question about divorce in Matthew 19, 3 to 9, that was a specific question about divorce. I like what John Tyson said. It's like Jesus took divorce and used it as a pulpit to just address marriage as a pulpit. And he went straight back to the garden area in Genesis chapter 2 to reveal God's intent for marriage. This reveals that Jesus saw God's design and purpose for marriage embedded in the creation narrative. Okay? I want you to understand, I say this all the time, I got this recorded about the first two chapters of the Bible speak to God's intent. The last two chapters of the Bible deal with God's intent fully realized. Everything in between is redemptive history. Yeah. That's where we're at right now. We are in this in-between stage called redemptive history, where God is working out his purposes in, within the context of broken community. Okay? And he's doing all that through his son. So in Genesis 2, uh, 20 through 25. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the ribs he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Everybody say, one flesh. One flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Praise God. We hate shame. Shame is the result of sin in the fall, right? The word, here's something beautiful. The word used for one flesh, or the oneness that's described in this card narrative, is also the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 in the Shema, which when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Jesus said, he, he was quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God, he is one. Ha. The same word used to describe the one flesh meaning ha, the two shall become ha, one flesh, is the same word used to describe the oneness of the Trinity. That's, that's, that's declared in the most important. And why, I'm sorry, I try to get our key a lot, but if I'm a teacher, but let's keep going. Like, why is love the highest ethic in, the, in biblical morality? Why is it the highest? Why is it the hallmark? Why can the whole law and prophets be summed up in love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? It, it flows from the transcendent source. God himself yeah, is love. That's right. right. And the oneness of God, which sets the basis for the whole wall, flows from God's very nature. Yeah. He is love right. and hates people. Right? So, and love does yeah. no harm to its neighbors. So therefore, it yeah. flows out of the oneness of God. Yeah. Love is, the, is core to the essence of who he is. Yeah. That's good. Now he's given us two simple commands. Very hard to keep. <laughs> All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that you are, essentially. Every part of your life. Your total being. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Take the same ordinary love that you care for yourself with and apply it to all of the people that you surround yourself with. Right? Okay, I got off on tangent. But the, the purpose there was this the same word, caught. Okay, one flesh is essential to the biblical view of marriage. It means one mortal life fully shared. Two selfish beings start learning to think like one unified us, sharing one everything, one life, one reputation. One bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, one mission, and so forth. No barriers, no hiding, no aloofness. Now total openness and to with total sharing and total solidarity until death parts them. That's right, Lord. Okay. 
So here's what Nancy Pierce said. She said, sexual intercourse as the most intimate form of physical union is meant to express the ultimate form of personal union in marriage. Common phrases for having sex include that it is the most you can do sexually. It is going all the way, or getting to home plate, or sealing the deal. That's why it belongs only in a relationship where you actually go all the way on all other levels as well. When you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, and spiritually, you should become naked and vulnerable physically only when you're ready to become naked and vulnerable with your whole self. As C.S. Lewis put it, those who have sex outside of marriage are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. She, Nancy Piercy, again, she's a professor, goes on to say, invariably my students ask, isn't it enough to be in love? The answer is that even being in love falls short of committing yeah. one's entire self and future yeah. in biblical nakedness to another person. Oh. Biblical morality asks us to be consistent in what we say with our bodies and what we say with the rest of our lives. Wow. Mm. To tell the truth with our bodies. Timothy Keller writes, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Mm. When we have sex outside of marriage, we are essentially lying with our bodies. Wow. Our actions are saying that we're united on all levels, when in reality we are not. Mm. We are contradicting ourselves. We are putting on an act. We are being dishonest. Ooh. If we swallow this dualism, this dichotomy that sets the body against the person, we have swallowed a lie that is tearing apart our social fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The biblical worldview is more beautiful. Yeah. The yeah. biblical worldview is more beautiful. Yeah. Okay? Marriage and family, what I want you to see from the Genesis 2 narrative is part of God's good design. What did he say after each act of creation? It's good. Yeah. It's good. He yeah. made value assessment. This is in its purpose. This is in its boundaries. Good, good. Mm. Humans, very good. Male, female, male, is in its very good. Yeah. Okay? And sex was part of his design. And God didn't look at sex and go, ew, gross, joy, bad. Right. <laughs> he goes, good. <laughs> good. Within its Within its boundaries. Yeah. Good. Okay? And what a sneaky little pervert the devil is. That he would come and take God's good creation. Yeah. The thing, think about this, the thing that has the ability to create life yeah. and use it as one of the primary instruments to seat you in shame, yeah. guilt, condemnation, keep you outside of God's presence. Wow. And all the other moral issues that flow out of it. How about you to see God is good? Yeah. And the devil for how sneaky and manipulative and disgusting he yeah. is. Yeah. Who would take God's good creation and try to destroy it. The, right. the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to yeah. give you life and life more abundantly. And that includes this area, right? It's like the devil doesn't want us to talk about it. Like, Ooh, people feel shame. Don't talk about that. No! Yeah. The devil doesn't want people to get free! Right. <laughs> yeah. There was a season yeah. of my life I was debating on the show. Like, I've been pretty open. I had a lot of sexual brokenness in my life. Even while I was calling myself a Christian, backslidden state, like, fornicator, having sex before marriage, all that. I remember in a season going to church, think about the irony, going to church with girls that I was living in the grave with, and thinking, man, I really hope that this passion doesn't talk about sexual morality. Mm -hmm. I like living in the grave. I don't want it to be, like, confronted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I was afraid of like like what the what the confrontation yeah. would do in my life. And some of you have seen this room with no shame. I have no shame in the room, right? Because that's my past. Like, I want you to say, I know probably there's people in the room who are sitting that saying, yeah. oh, I don't want to hear about that because I, I, I kind of like living in the grave. See, the gray is killing you. Mm -hmm. yeah. The gray is sapping yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Of the life, the vitality that we could be having in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that, like, yeah. He wants to purify you, He wants to sanctify you, He wants to make you whole. Yes. Okay? Yes. yes. And that's with no shame, no condemnation. I don't want you to hear that. Remember, the tone yeah. at the beginning, that's not the tone I want you to receive yeah. this talk. That's good. But it's like, you know, we're going to, like, hey, I should, if there's anyone in this room who's unqualified to get this talk, it's <laughs> like, it's me. But remember, it's a at the end of history, it's a redemptive hallelujah. It's a story of grace to God for his grace. Yeah. And then so it takes good, broken people from darkness yeah, to light. It transforms us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the blood of Jesus. So it's like, yeah. I don't know what your story is tonight, but I want to say, redemptive history. Redemptive history is, is a force far straighter. I think it's Romans 6 that says where sin abounded, Christ abounded much more. And that's not license to sin. That's right. license to get right. free. That's license to overcoming it over the wall. It's just staring you in the face. If sin is like a giant erected wall in your face that won't let you see the presence of God, your grace abounds to keep you over that wall and into luscious pastures where you can enjoy the good creation of God. That's good. Does that make sense? Marriage and family are part of God's good design. Mm -hmm. Why? Because God defines marriage. Last week we talked about 1 John where it says, I think it's 1 John 4.12, God is love. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of definitions of love right now that are competing with God's definition of love. If your definition of love does not stem from the character and attributes and nature of God, you have a broken definition of love. Wow. And downstream you're going to see brokenness result from that. Wow. If your definition of marriage does not start with how God defines it, then downstream there's going to be brokenness, right? So as much as it makes us sound like, remember I asked in the beginning, how many of you would say that in today's culture, if you hold to a historic biblical definition of marriage, you are seen as hateful? Right, like ignorant, whatever. But it's like if God in Genesis two and Jesus aligned Himself with God's creation narrative in Genesis two, I want to be on Jesus' side and I want to align myself with how Jesus defined marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. So after sin, some people will say this. Well, what about like all the broken people that God worked with throughout history? They had like multiple wives. It's like which definition of marriage are you talking about? After sin entered creation in Genesis 3, we, we begin to see the fall affecting human relationships and marriage at every level, okay? Remember, first two chapters, God's intention. Last two chapters of the Bible, God's intention fully realized his goal achieved. Everything in between redemptive history, God is working with broken humans. For example, in Genesis 4, uh, after the fall, no, after the fall, not in the garden, we see Laban, and there's a statement that says that Laban took two wives. Mm -hmm. Wow. I remember when I like saw that recently as I was studying this, I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen that statement. I've always been like, how is this like it's crazy? The patriarchs have multiple wives or whatever. And it's like one chapter after the fall, and you get wow. this little one-line sentence, and Laban took two wives. Wow. Wow. And it's like already they're pushed outside the boundary of the garden, you start seeing people live outside of God's purpose, right? Yeah. But if you follow the redemptive arc yeah. of marriage, you follow the redemptive arc of history, you see God moving it back towards the original standard. Uh, and restoring marriage mm -hmm. and So just really quick, uh, if we continue to follow the story arc of marriage through the Bible, uh, we see that God enters into covenant with Israel and uses the language of marriage to describe the nature of their relationship. Israel is constantly, the message of the prophets is basically this, be faithful. Like, 
Stop committing adultery. Literally, like their idolatry was called adultery. Stop worshiping other gods. Come back to worship of the one true God. And yet, despite their constant unfaithfulness, we see that God remains faithful to his covenant. God is covenantly faithful. In the New Testament, the church, which is the new covenant people of God, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, are called the bride of Christ. Okay? Ephesians 5, this is crazy, tells us that the marriage between a man and a woman is a parable for the relationship between Christ and his bride. Wow. You, you want to, like, know what the goal of your marriage should be? Is to, like, glorify God by representing as a husband? Like, this is where Ephesians 5 is, like, oh, it talks about wives submit to your husband. Yeah, but it also says husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. When you are, like, living sacrificially in love for your wife, you become a safe place for her to come under your leadership, right? And you know what I'm saying? That's a more good narrative, right? That's a more, that's a, I'm going to keep using the verbal name, that's a more good narrative. It's a more beautiful narrative that you realize that your marriage as a follower of Jesus is supposed to evidence Christ's love for the church. Whoa, that's a high view of marriage. Wow. Come on. I like bringing my kids here probably because, like, selfishly, I want my kids to grow up seeing, like, people your age that love Jesus. Yeah. And like literally I'm like, I just gonna have such an apologetic one. When they can see that in the second universe there's twenty year olds who love Jesus, even though my son's like two years old, I want that impression of a Regan and Kojo and Seth and of Arcala and Katrina. Like I want him to see yeah. Jesus lovers the next like the I don't know how many generations ahead of him. But it's like I want them to grow up seeing that. But I also want you guys to see we're not perfect family. But we're a family who love Jesus and yeah. be faithful to my wife. She's faithful to me. Yeah. And we come from broken families. I want you to have both of our parents are divorced. Both of our fathers, I don't want to just tell my father, both of our fathers had affairs on our moms. Wow. And we've experienced brokenness. And we feel like we're pioneering healthy. Biblical worldview explanation that we still have time to get into right now. But I just want to say that, like, 
man, God is for you. Um, all that to say, where I was going with, like, don't make an idol out of marriage, right? So what we tend to make is, like, it's such a high prize that it gets, like, an inordinate place, right? It almost becomes, like, this unhealthy thing that we aspire to, and people who may not desire it or may not be called to it, then feel left out. Like, you're saying not, that this doesn't really matter, it's not, like, my identity, but that's all y'all are talking about is, like, the most important thing. Christ is the most important thing to me. He is the treasure hidden in the field. So what I want to say is the only thing that we want to put on that high pedestal is Christ himself. Amen. But marriage is a good gift when enjoyed in its context, right? Yeah, the sexuality right. enjoyed in the context of marriage is a good gift. We don't want to idolize sex, and we don't want to idolize marriage. We want to put them all under Christ. Does this make sense? Yes! Okay. So, but you're not wrong for desiring marriage either. So I just want you to hear this as, like, as balanced as possible. Um... But we do want to understand, this is what I've been trying to draw, not to idolize marriage or give it un unhealthy prominence, but to understand its sacredness. Yeah, and, right. and understand that it's the only place where sexuality is rightly expressed in the context of a covenant relationship. Mm. And then just to finish the story arc, the end of Revelation culminates in a wedding between Christ and his bride. Wow. So all that to say, marriage is a prominent theme and a consistent thread throughout the Bible. And as followers of Jesus, we must allow God to find the mm -hmm. Sexuality, again, was designed to exist as an expression of the one flesh union which exists within the lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. There is a telos, there is a design, there is a purpose, there is an end goal for sexuality as, re as revealed for the biblical worldview that integrates the whole person in a way that is more beautiful, compelling, and agrees with the actual worldview that the other test of the worldview is not just do you like it more, does this work? Wow. Did the sexual revolution achieve its goal? Did it take us to utopia or did it take you? Ask of yourself, did the sexual revolution take us towards utopia or towards more brokenness? Wow. Mm -hmm. This doesn't fit the world we actually live in. There's a telos, there's a design that's good. And when we go against the good brain, we get brokenness. Okay? So here are a couple questions for your reflection. I'm going to get ready to close here in just a second. Do you personally, you can hear me say all of this, I understand that you might be like ready to stone me and hear everything I've said tonight, and that's okay. No. <laughs> I believe that as faithfully as I could, I stood on this, but yeah. like, do you believe that we live in a world that is designed? I want to ask you, I love asking this to other people, hey, just out of sheer appearance, I know that we can explain a lot of things based on cause and effect, but just like the cause and effect of every little part of the card doesn't tell you the purpose for which it is designed and what you told you there was some card before. When you look at the world around you, does it appear to be designed or appear to all be very is there a design to the universe that we live in? In other words, is it embedded with purpose and meaning? Yeah. Okay. If so, do you believe that the value or the moral goodness or badness of a thing is defined by the transcendent one who designed the purpose of things? Not do I believe that. Do you personally believe that the moral goodness or badness of a thing, an action, a thought, whatever, is defined by the transcendent being who embedded it with purpose and meaning? Or is it defined subjectively by yourself? Okay? Do you believe that we live in a world that is merely physical, mechanistic, and devoid of value or purpose? Last question. Do you believe that the value, that value is personally determined and subjective? Here's where I want to end. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. This is the fall. When a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it, took some and ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. 
Although God had clearly forbid the woman from taking the fruit, get this, it appeared good and pleasing to the eye. She desired it. She took it and ate it. And she believed the lie that God was withholding something good from her. This is the, the lie about sexuality so many of us have swallowed, that God is withholding something good from me, and if this barrier was removed, and I would be fully satisfied with those things, right? Wow. She believed the lie that she could determine what was right and wrong for herself. She believed the lie that she could determine what was right and wrong for herself. And she believed the lie that something that looked good and desirable couldn't bring about fun. But it looks good. If it, it, I naturally find myself desiring this God, a desire that's so natural, couldn't possibly be wrong. And it can't bring about fun. Yet in the moment that she ate it, the eyes of them both were over the world. That was before just the proper credit. We Phillips did an awesome interview with uh, Preston Sprinkle and Theology and all podcasts that I highly recommend. And when we get to the end of all these, I'll probably give you guys lots of resources that you guys can continue these conversations with. But here's, here's the takeaway. The gospel confronts us with our need to repent. That word for repentance is a change of mind. Okay? It's a change of mind and a corresponding change in actions based on aligning ourselves with God's word and with God's way. So I believe that human sexuality in our definition of marriage is the primary place where if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully in this generation, like all the generations that are going before us, mm-hmm. then we need to personally ask the Lord, what does it look like for us to repent and realign ourselves with God's intended? So I'm going to pray for you guys. Uh, we don't have like an altar call response. We're not going to be small this so I just want to introduce the topic tonight. Again, based on the anonymous parts, we've got to determine that will determine where we go next week. And, like, you don't even have to tell me. I know that within this room, without making eye contact with anyone else with my eyes, there's a lot of people <laughs> breaking in this area. Yeah. I can say it, but I've seen the stats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I believe God wants to bring breakthroughs. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about handles for that in future weeks. I just want to start the conversation. So that's good. Yeah. But, like, clear the air and just say, I believe God's way is better. Yeah. And I believe that there are thoughtful responses that we can give for today's moral issues yeah. that don't look us into the category where we're bigoted or whatever. I think that if we actually force people to confront the underlying worldview, we can see that what is actually better and more beautiful and leads to more wholeness and health. And so I want to pray for you guys, but I do want to encourage you. We'll have some of our leaders up front at the end, like not ultra response. We'll dismiss you guys, eat donuts, hang out, whatever. But if you're like, I don't want to wait till next week for a future week, I want healing in my life right now. Or I want breakthrough my life. I need to like have somebody just grab my hands and agree with me. We'll pray, obviously, guys with guys, girls with girls. You don't have to wait to the future week. There's yeah. no specific call. But the Lord's pricked your heart, and you know that He's like just pounding your chest, and you just need somebody else in the light to just agree with you and pray for you. Let tonight be that night. And nobody has like nobody outside of who's praying for you has to know, right? So I don't want you like looking around the room and thinking, oh, they're up there getting prayer. I know we Stop. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. history yeah. is the body of Christ. We are people. Right? So I want to pray, and then like if you guys can just uh, try to figure out how to do the bowl type of things. Just lay the cards up here. You know, like I'm not going to be like watching. Oh, what question did you write? You know, <laughs> like just lay your anonymous cards. It will be very helpful to know like what the actual needs of the room are as we speak to this in the future weeks. Um, 
And so, yeah, let me pray for you guys. We'll have leaders up here. As I get ready to pray, leaders, some of you guys, whoever feels comfortable, can we come stand up in front? And just, as I'll dismiss you. After I'm done praying, you're dismissed. But if you want prayer, find one of these people. And if it's personal and you want to go somewhere else, like, whatever you need to do, like, praise God. Yes. Uh, but I just want to, Jesus loves you guys. Yeah. So yeah. much. Amen. So much. That's so good. And he's so kind. There's kind of, like, the kindness in Jesus' yeah. eyes, the compassion in Jesus' eyes could break the hardest, Absolutely. most toughest exterior. Maybe you've got like one of those big grizzly dads. It's like, I believe that the kindness in Jesus' eyes yeah. meant like the most grizzly machismo man. They would just weep like a baby. Like I just believe that the kindness of God yeah. draws men to repentance. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Right? Yeah. Like, God loves you so much. Father, right now in Jesus' name, yes. we just 